My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find the very last book of your Bible. Find Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing through our study of the seven churches, and um, we've been in a, a little bit of a downward trend since the church at Smyrna. Have you noticed that? That these churches keep getting worse. Isn't that annoying? That uh, Smyrna was that church in the, uh, that was the suffering church, the church that was cleansed by the persecution that it was experiencing. And that was a church that got no critiques whatsoever. Well, today we're going to look at the church at Sardis, and Sardis gets no commendation, one of two churches that get, gets no commendation whatsoever. And then since you've moved forward from Smyrna, you had uh, the church at Pergamum that had a few, where Jesus said, I've got a few things against you. There's some people in the church that are holding to the teaching of Balaam that there was, a, there was a tumor in the church. But at that point, it was benign. And then we looked at the church at Thyatira last week, and we had problems there, didn't we, where the, ter- where the tumor went malignant, uh, that it changed. Now, the whole church was tolerating some teaching from this false prophetess named Jezebel. Well, now, in the city of Sardis, you have a church that is a, uh, it's a zombie church. Uh, I taught several years ago, uh, the, um, this very week, uh, the week leading up to Halloween, I taught the text in Mark chapter 5 about the Gerasene demoniac. And I said, man, my sermon planning is wonderful. What a great text for Halloween week. And I thought the same thing when we got to this text. Uh, this is a great text for Halloween week. It's about a church uh, that is going to be evaluated by Jesus, a church that has a reputation of being alive but is really dead, that it's going through the motions. It has services, and it has pews, and it has songs that they sing. It has a uh, reputation in the city where they live. But Jesus is going to have a very harsh rebuke of this church. He said, he's going to say, you have a reputation that is alive, but in reality, you're dead. So the, word, the Greek word for name, N-A-M-E, or, uh, is the same word that you get for reputation. It's going to be mentioned four different times in this passage. So we're going to talk about reputation. If you've ever thought, what do those people think of me? You're thinking about your reputation. If you've ever looked at the reviews on Amazon for the thing you bought, you're looking at reputation. If you've ever asked somebody for a recommendation and you thought, who are the people that for sure I want to ask for a recommendation? You don't ask the people who have a poor opinion of you, do you? You ask the people who love you and think you're wonderful, think you uh, walk with Jesus very, very clearly. You have high character, that your reputation can go before you and can precede you. Your reputation can follow after you. If you've ever had parents or coaches or teachers who said, you need to represent what uh, our family is like when you're out there and in the world, that we have this kind of name and we have this kind of reputation, don't sully the reputation when you go and do what you're going to do. So in this church, this church is going to have a good reputation, but it's going to have a good reputation in the eyes of men. So what happens when there's a church that has a good reputation in the eyes of men, but doesn't have a good reputation in heaven? What do we do with that church? What does Jesus counsel to churches who uh, look healthy, they look like they're alive, but they're a husk, there's nothing on the inside? There's no spiritual vitality. There's no connection. There's no true 
spiritual life. Well, that's the church at Sardis. That's what you're going to hear today. Uh, And for us personally, it really, really matters for us uh, as Christians what Jesus says about our spiritual life, right? It really, really matters what Jesus says about our church's spiritual life. So Jesus is going to come to this church and expose and reveal this church for the, for the purposes and promises and really for the hope. This is a really hopeful passage as well, uh, and I think it'll be an encouragement to you here today. So let's pray, and uh, let's jump into this church here together. Father in heaven, for your word here this morning, for those who come in this morning and are wrestling with uh, reputation. For people pleasers who walk in and feel like their life may fall apart if people think poorly of them. For myself and others who I know have dealt with seasons in my life where uh, uncertainty in the eyes of men and a poor reputation in the eyes of men feels like the end of the world. I pray that we would gain great comfort and great counsel from this text here this morning. Father, would you shape us that uh, our hope in this life would not be the opinions of men, but would be the commendation of God. That we, as we walk through the leading of our families and the discipleship of others and the, the jobs that you call us to and the places where we are meant to be your sons and daughters and to represent who you are, that you would give us courage in those seasons, that we would hear uh, your voice saying, well done, good and faithful servant, that we would have an intimacy with you, that there would be true spiritual life in this place. And for those here this morning who feel like they've just been going through the motions, that you would encourage them, that you would remind them and counsel them to remember and keep and repent the truth of your word and encourage them that you can resurrect anyone at any stage and in any phase of life, no matter how dreary and bleak it looks. So, Father, we come to you as a dependent and hopeful people. We come to you as people who are prone to forget the truths of your word. And we pray that you'd open our eyes here this morning to see what you would have to say to us. May we be a repentant and sensitive people in our hearts and minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3. Y'all there? Say, move your head in a direction, because I can't, again, I can't see you smile at me. Revelation, I'm going to find it too, since I'm going to be a good, obedient individual here. Revelation chapter 3, the church at Sardis. Let's take a look here. And to the angel of the church at Sardis, write this. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as we've gone through these Uh, churches, you remember that Jesus begins with a particular aspect of his character. And this is one that is somewhat familiar already. We've already seen Jesus mention the seven stars, right? Flip back to the very first church. Just turn one page back in your Bible. Look at our Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 starts. The angel of the church at Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Well, you've got the seven stars mentioned here, but Uh, along with the seven stars that we said seem to be the leading leaders or the ones who would uh, preach and teach the word of God in these local assemblies, you also have the mention of another individual. It's kind of a a stylized way that we said of referring to the Holy Spirit. This was in the greeting back in Revelation chapter 1, that there was God the Father, the seven spirits, and it was Jesus. So it's probably the Holy Spirit here. 
So what Jesus begins with to this church at Sardis, who he's going about to describe as dead, is he's going to tell this church that he is sovereignly in control of its spiritual leaders and sovereignly in control of its spiritual life. Now, that's, that's good news, isn't it? That Jesus can, we, do we believe that Jesus can raise the dead? So yes, right? Jesus can raise the dead. So when Jesus begins this letter and he talks about it, he said, I can raise the dead personally, but I can also raise the dead corporately. You with me? So that Jesus can, uh, the good news in, uh, or the danger in Ephesus, remember, was that uh, Jesus walks among the lampstands. And one of the things we said there is that Jesus has sovereign control and authority to both open and close churches, right? Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will come and I will take away your lampstand. I will knock out the light and your church will be done. Well, the good news here as we begin this story about a a church that is in this city of Sardis is that Jesus can not only open and close churches, but that Jesus can resurrect churches. Isn't that great? That he begins with this promise that he's the one who holds the Holy Spirit. He's the one through whom the Holy Spirit can come and give new personal life and new corporate life in the life of the church. Isn't that what you want for our church? Don't you want to be a part of a church that has true, authentic, spiritual life? That's what I want. I'd like to go to that church where there's, the, there's an acknowledgement that what is happening here is only a result of the power of the Spirit of God. Let's do that. How about that? So look at what it says. The angel of the church at Sardis, write this, the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Now, usually Jesus begins these letters with a commendation. Here's the entire acknowledgement of what this church is doing. Four words. I know your works. Now, if you're going to read a little bit of tone in there, a little bit of creative Bible reading, what's the tone? My sense when I read that is Jesus uh, almost breezes by what this church is doing. Yeah, I, I, I know your works. But that's not the point. I know what you're doing on the outside. I know you have these spiritual practices and these rhythms and these routines and all of these things that you're doing. And now watch what he says. I know your works. You have the reputation. Now, how do we build a reputation? Maybe you've got a good reputation in your class because you have some sort of intellectual prowess, that you're good at what you do, or you're recognized because of some certain set of behaviors. Maybe you've got a reputation at work because you're intellectually further advanced than your colleagues, or you were the one who closed that deal or made a lot of money for the company, and now you have some element of production that you bring to the table in your line of work, whatever it is. You can be popular from, or have a, high, a good reputation from the sense of purely speaking about popularity. You've got a right number of Twitter followers or Facebook followers or whatever, that there's, that there's a sense of popularity that way or accomplishment, as we've excuse me, already said. Well, Jesus looks at this church and says, I know your reputation. I know what people are saying about you. I, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's quite a critique of a church, isn't it? They might look good on the outside. They may look established. They may look busy. But they might not be alive. 
which asks you a couple of things. Remember we said last week Jesus has the eyes that are the flame of fire, right? That Jesus can look into the true nature of things. Jesus, when he shares the, uh, and he teaches in uh, Luke chapter 16, he talks about no man can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, it says in Luke, who were lovers of money, they ridiculed Jesus for this. And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. He said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Do you recognize that Jesus has different values than humans do? That God seems to value things differently than humans do on earth. There, there's a different kind of uh, worthiness in the eyes of God than there is in the eyes of man. You remember the story of Samuel? We looked at 1 Samuel back in 1996, I think. Way back when. Before COVID. Uh, and in, in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel the prophet comes to anoint David. God rejects Saul and he comes to anoint David. And he goes to this family with a guy named Jesse who's got seven sons. And he, he brings out the very first son, a son named Eliab. And he brings him out and Samuel says, oh, this guy is impressive. He's tall, he's fast, he's strong, he's good looking. This must be the one that God is after. And God says, no, I've rejected him. And then son after son after son after son comes out, right? Not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. And he gets to the end and Samuel says to Jesse, don't you have any other kids? He goes, yeah, I got one more boy who's watching the sheep. He's way out in the field. And Samuel says, what? Bring him. And he comes. And the minute David walks on the scene, God tells Samuel, that's the one. And God says something very interesting to Samuel. I don't look on the outside. I look on the inside. So that God not only has different values, but God has deeper values. That he looks deeper than the way men can look, right? Isn't, aren't you, um, don't you recognize this temptation? That a lot of times when it comes to our reputation, there's a little bit of fear that comes along with it. That I got the promotion, I got the award, I got the recognition, but if they knew who I really was, dot, dot, dot. Because if I get exposed as not being as great as they think I am, it's going to go real, real bad for me. We all face those temptations, don't we? To where the real us we're real nervous with, we're real sensitive to, we're real uncertain. And we'll have a reputation out here that looks secure, that looks accomplished, that looks like it's alive, but on the inside, there are some areas that we're embarrassed to talk about. There are some areas in our life where if we were real honest, we weren't as accomplished and great and successful on the outside the way we look as we feel on the inside. You ever been there? Where there's a little bit of fear that comes along with, if they knew who I really was, they really wouldn't applaud. You know what happens when Jesus walks the earth? Remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit life, eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. You know this. And he goes, yeah, I've, all, I've kept them all since I was a kid. What do I still lack? And Jesus looked at him. And he says, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And you know the end of the story. He goes away sad. In the middle of what Jesus tells him, is what Jesus does, and when he exposes this rich young ruler who has it all, who has success and accomplishment in the eyes of the world, he says, sell all of what you have, give to the poor, then come and what? Jesus says, then come and follow me. See, with Jesus, when we feel 
this disconnect between our reputation and who we are on the inside, the things where we get, would be real embarrassed about being exposed for who we are, Jesus never does that to shame us. Do you know that? Jesus, when he does that, that exposure in our lives where we realize, gosh, I said the wrong thing, I blew it, I'm not as, uh, man, I, now I really look like a sinner, I really don't look like I have it all together. That moment for you is so important in your life because with Jesus, it's always an invitation. He never exposes us to ruin us. He always exposes us to invite us into closer and deeper intimacy with him. I'm going to show you that in this text. He does the same thing with the woman in the well, John chapter 4. The woman at the well meets Jesus. She goes away into the city and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What does that mean? He knows everything about me and he didn't reject me. He knows everything about who I am, the real me. Take away my reputation, take away my accomplishments, take away what men said. This man knows me all the way down to who I am on the inside. And he didn't turn me away. So when Jesus begins this letter to this church and says, you have this reputation, but let me tell you where you are right now. This is what you and I need to have a healthy spiritual life, is we've got to have these areas in our life that we feel like we're trying to pull and hold together, we need to drop our arms and let ourselves sometimes uh, be exposed so that we can be healed, be exposed so that repentance and restoration and relationship and intimacy with Jesus can really happen. Now, so church, you're, you've got this reputation on the outside of being alive, but you're dead. So here's what Jesus is going to do. How do you resurrect a church? Jesus is going to give you five different commands. Five different imperative verbs about what you need to do to get this church back on its feet, to get this church to move from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. You ready? You can take notes. Here they go. Number, uh, number verse. Verse number two. Wake up. It could be translated, be watchful. It's the same verb that Jesus uses when he's with the disciples and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane toward the end of his life and he gets ready to pray. He tells the disciples uh, there, watch and pray so that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Wake up. So there's a hint here as to what has happened to this church, is this church has gone progressively more and more sleepy in the culture. They've gone more and more at peace with being in this culture and doing the things that they normally do. Have you noticed in the past several churches how there was opposition? There's a threat to these churches that the churches need to be serious about and take control of and stand up and fight. There's no mention of Satan in this, in this letter. There's no mention of a false teacher in this letter. There's no mention of pressure from the outside, from a synagogue of Satan, Jews who say they are Jews but are not. This church is merely going with the flow. And Jesus says, wake up. 
Have you noticed that temptation in your spiritual life over time to begin to move from intimacy just to routine? Well, I always do this. I always, this is what I always do. I kind of do the routine. I do the thing. I do the spiritual. I pull the lever and pull the rope and click the button, and that's my spiritual life. And Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Not only should you wake up, you should do number two. You see what number two is? Strengthen. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen the word that is used of Jesus. This is such a great word. It's used a lot of times in the New Testament uh, in a way to say establish. It's used of Jesus when it says of Jesus that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What does that mean? That means Jesus took courage. He had a plan, and he said, I'm going that direction with resolve right to the cross. So if you have in this mental image in your mind, you take somebody from being asleep to waking up to standing with resolve to be ready to do what they need to do. That's pretty good, isn't it? You move from being asleep with chips on your shirt to in the boxing ring. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is the most encouraging half verse, I think, uh, in this entire letter. Four, why? What's the point? I'm just going through the routine, I'm going through the rhythm, I'm doing the things that I need to do, it's just kinda normal. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. That is so encouraging to me. Is that encouraging to you? That Jesus' counsel to these people is to wake up and get strong because your work isn't done. I don't care where you are in your Christian life right now. If you're in this situation that looks like spiritual death, it looks like a spiritual coma, for Jesus to say to this church, wake up and strengthen what about, what, uh, what do you say? I'll say it again. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You've still got more work to do. You aren't done. God is not done with you yet. You hear me? If you've been going through the routine and the rhythm and you just feel like a spiritual husk, would you hear this word to you here this morning? Wake up, strengthen what, about what is, uh, remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete. If you are breathing, then you've still got more for Jesus to do. For Jesus, for you, to, you with me, right? You understand that? You've still got more to do for Jesus. God's still got a plan for you. You may feel asleep, but you need to wake up, strengthen what, what remains. And you need to be about what Jesus is calling you to do. You hear me? Get to it. There's still more work to be done. Now, well, all right, Steve, I'm awake. I'm ready. Now what? This is great. Look at verse 3. Remember then. Well, what, what do I remember? You know, memory in the Bible is a, is a great theme. It's never nostalgia. You know what nostalgia is? It's, man, weren't the times great back there? It's what the people, nostalgia is what the people of Israel did when they come out of Egypt and they complain. 
They go, we, there was times in Egypt where we had these leeks and onions and meat, and it was so great. Yeah, we were enslaved. I got that part. Yeah, the whips and the making the bricks, I get that. But man, we had good stuff to eat. See, nostalgia always pulls you backward. What did Jesus just say? Wake up, you still have more work to do. Where's Jesus looking? He's looking forward. Your works aren't complete. You've got more to do. So, well, how do I begin to move forward into what you've called me to do? And Jesus says, remember. What is that? Why does he say that? Because remembering always feels like it's looking back, isn't it? Something happened back there. How does something that happens back there have control and influence over what I'm supposed to do up here? Uh, Jesus gets into the boat with the disciples. And Jesus tells the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples go, oh, man, we, uh, what? We didn't bring any bread. Does he think about bread? What's Jesus talking about? Do we need more leaven? How do we find leaven in a boat? That doesn't make sense. What is Jesus talking about? And Jesus says to the disciples, uh, it, it's uh, Matthew uh, 19, 16. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? What's Jesus saying? I did something back here that's supposed to order how you live right here. I did something back there. This demonstration was for you to appreciate up here. Memory in the Bible always, always, always has to do with you looking back to a truth that's back there and ordering your present life according to the truth that's back here, which is what Jesus is about to say. There's only two mentions of this word in the entire book of Revelation. You know where they are? Right here and in one other place. Does that sound familiar? Did we have another church in this sequence of letters that was told to remember? Remember, repent, and do the works you did at the start. What was that church? It was Ephesus. What was Ephesus's problem? They had lost their first love. They lost the sense of amazing grace. And now you have a church here. What have they lost? They've lost their life. So the antidote for losing spiritual love is memory. It's remembering what God had done. It's going back to the time when I walked with God and experienced his grace and was close in fellowship and intimacy here Remembering is connected to the loss of life in the church. It's going back to the time when I remember what the, what the spark was that lit the tinder of my spiritual life. Remember what? He uses a semi-technical term that Paul uses in his letters. Remember what you received and heard. It was the initial preaching of the gospel that began this church. Go back to that point when you heard the pure water of gospel doctrine that gave you true spiritual life, where the Spirit of God came alive as you heard the preaching of the truth of the gospel message. Remember that. Remember what gave you spiritual life in the beginning. Listen, we in our Christian lives are not dependent primarily on routines and rhythms and disciplines. We are dependent on the Spirit of God that alone gives life. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 6? The flesh profits nothing. The spirit gives life. Remember what you received and you heard. 
Then what? You know what I think this church is? I think this church uh, is at a place of peace with the culture. That they've forgotten what makes them distinct as a church. They've forgotten the truth that makes them stand out from the culture. G.K. Chesterton has this, he's an English writer, he has this great quote that he says, any dead thing can flow with the stream. It takes a living thing to go against it. Remember what you've received and you heard. Verse, uh, look at the, the, we're on number four. You with me? Wake up, strengthen, remember. Here's your next one. Don't be like the man who looks into the, the law of freedom and is like the man who forgets what his face looks like, right? From James chapter one. Be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Here's what Jesus says to the church. Keep it. Remember the gospel doctrine and keep it. Watch it. Guard it. Obey it. Be about making the gospel of Jesus Christ the rudder of your life that allows you to weather the storms and the wind and the currents and all of those things. Keep it. And number five, repent. Let me say this. Living churches, churches that have real, true spiritual life, are not sinless churches. Do you know that? That seems kind of an oxymoron, doesn't it? It seems counterintuitive to think that, well, the churches that are really alive are the ones that don't struggle with sin the way I struggle with sin. They don't do the things that I do. Living, healthy churches are repenting churches. They're churches that realize, and Christians that realize, that there are times when my life is runs counter to the truth of Scripture, and Jesus calls me back and invites me back into moments of repentance to restore and teach and train me to make the gospel the center of my life, to make the truth about Jesus uh, the thing that reorders my affections and my ambitions and the things that I love and the dreams that I have to where the churches that are living churches are always repenting. They're always examining their spiritual lives and going, where are we out of order with the way God wants us to be? How do we repent and come back to the plumb line and the standard of who God wants us to be? That's why in your Bible... The law is given in Exodus. You know what the very next book is? The book that you stop reading because it gets so dry? Leviticus. What's Leviticus about? Sacrifices to maintain the relationship between God and his people. So living churches are repenting churches. Are churches that are reordering their lives according to the truth about God. Well, what happens, Jesus, if I don't do these things? If this church doesn't turn around, what happens? Look at the remainder of the verse. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. If you have a Bible with cross-references, you got a cross-reference in Matthew? Move your head in a direction, because I don't know. Say yes. Matthew 24, as you should have. It's a direct quote of a parable that Jesus tells about a man who was not awake when the thief came. Thieves, typically, in the New Testament, have to do with the imminency of judgment. It shows up in 1 Thessalonians 5 about the church who doesn't need to be asleep. We are not people of the darkness, but people of the light, so that we are aware of what is going on in our spiritual and physical lives. We can see the overlap in those things. Jesus says, if you won't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. This would be very, a very particular uh, warning to the people at Sardis. Sardis is a city 
that was on a plateau. And it was in a plateau in the midst of a valley so that when you go and you would look at Sardis, it would look like they had these sheer rock faces on three different sides. And it would come out into the valley like this. So you'd have this tall, tall, sheer faces that would come. And it was really a, an easily defensible city. And as the city grew, it grew down from this plateau and from this place of safety into the valley below. And at two times in the history of this city, this city was conquered in the very same way. You couldn't attack this city from any of the sides. And the way that you would get to it from the one open side would be to climb the mountain and bring your, va- your army in, but you couldn't get in this way because this is the most easily defensible way into the city. With, are you following my plateau illustration? Plateau, three sides, one way in. You with me? The way this city was taken was by a general who was observing the city and saw one of the soldiers at the top lose a helmet. And he watched him. And he lost a helmet down one of the sheer faces. And the guy climbed down, got his helmet, and got back up to the top. And he said, hmm. The way this city was taken, it was said that a child could defend this city. The entire city would watch at this gate over here, but they wouldn't watch these sides. And the way the city was taken, not one time but twice, was by individuals who climbed up by that very same way and found their way into the city and took the city twice because the city didn't station a guard. They weren't watchful. And Jesus says, if you don't pay attention, if you don't remember and strengthen and wake up and keep and repent, there's going to come a time when I will visit this church and the church will be done. Look at verse 4. Remember how Jesus recommended, um, he knew, he said of the church at Pergamum, I had a few things against you. There's some in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Jesus always sees things clearly, right? He sees the minority that's happening in the church that's a danger to the church. Here, he sees a minority that's faithful to his will. You have still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is another element about Sardis. Remember in Thyatira, we, we said that this city was like a trade, had trade guilds. It was a very blue-collar uh, uh, kind of city. This is another city that's like that, whose main uh, economic trade was textiles and the dyeing of wool. So when Jesus speaks to this church, he would also be speaking to a church who understands the dyeing of clothing and the colors of clothing and clothes being soiled and clothes being clean. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garment. That's a word that's only used three times in the Bible. The two other places it's used from here is about um, worshiping uh, false gods, idolatry, and it's used in the context of sexual sin. And Jesus says, there are people in your church who have not gone, now has sexual sin and idolatry been a problem in the churches up to this point? Say yes. If you read through, that's been a consistent theme, that there have been problems with false teachers who come in and appeal to the base desires of humans. And here, Jesus says there's a few people, there's a few names who haven't soiled their garments. 
They haven't gone with the flow in the culture. You ever feel like you've been in a place in life, I felt like this in college and several relationships I had, where I was the only one who was doing what God wanted me to do. I was the only one who was praying that, that my flatmates or my roommates or my uh, people at work, I felt like I was all alone. You may feel like that at work. You may feel like that in your family. You may feel like that in your neighborhood where you feel like, I know I'm not supposed to be doing these kinds. I know I'm supposed to hold to the truth of Jesus and who he is. But man, I just feel like I'm on my own. You with me? You ever been there? Or you go, I don't know how I'm going to have this conversation. I don't know how I'm going to have this relationship. I don't know how I'm going to hold to the truth about Jesus and who he wants me to be in this situation. I don't know how I'm going to remain pure when all of my roommates are living life in, in this kind of way over here. And I love that Jesus says, I know right where you are. I know your name. Isn't that encouraging? To know that Jesus knows right where you are. To know that Jesus sees the people in, the, in a church that is dead. He sees the few names who are still holding on to the particular elements that makes a church a church. They haven't soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Worthy comes from a word. It's a great word. It's a word that's used in, um, it's a word A-X-I-O-S. It means to balance. It's not that these people have attained to some standard. It's that they've taken God at his word, and they've said, I am putting more faith and trust in what God says. Pay attention here. They're putting more faith and trust in what God says than what people say. You with me? They are valuing things rightly. That's what we said. God has a different set of values, and these people, these few names in the church, are valuing things rightly. Now, that's not just for them. Look at verse 5. The one who conquers. What does it mean to conquer? In context, it means to hold to the truth of the gospel doctrines that are particularly hard to hold to in a culture that is going a certain way. You want to lose your reputation in the eyes of men? Start to talk about Jesus' virgin birth. Start to talk about substitutionary atonement. Start to talk about how you cannot be saved as a result of what you do, but only what Jesus does for you. Start to talk about how God is going to hold every single man and woman accountable for every thought, word, and deed. Start talking about Jesus and the wrath that is to come. You want to start your staff meeting that way this week? See, the gospel doctrines, the truth of what we hold as Christians in a church, are fundamentally out of step with the flow. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. There are some there who haven't held. They haven't soiled their garments. And the ones who conquer will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What a promise. What a promise. White garments uh, are connected to two different ideas that I think are woven, no pun intended, 
together into this image here. So the first ones talk about purity and holiness, right? They haven't soiled their garments. They haven't gone with the flow of what everybody else is doing. So there's a sense of purity and holiness that's captured in this idea. But also, there's a sense here that of, of victory, that what the church, when it shows up at the end of this book, shows up in clothed in white robes that are an example of military and ceremonial victory and conquest. So this city would have experienced being conquered and having the conquering generals come in clothed in white with the people who have won the victory in the day, and they would be on the other side, and they would go, well, it wasn't us. It wasn't our day. We aren't clothed in victory. We aren't clothed in righteousness. We aren't clothed in success. But Jesus says, those who conquer will be clothed thus in white garments. That your expression of holiness and biblical conviction here is a minor flash compared to what will fully be revealed at the end. To when you will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, that sounds like a discouraging way to end. It's actually incredibly encouraging. Romans, when they had a citizen who would die, they would be removed and blotted out from the city registry. So essentially, their names and their deeds would be totally forgotten. It was similar with criminals who would particularly offend the sensibilities of the city. They would take their name and strike it out, and they would be buried and forgotten. Jesus says, that will never happen to you. I know where you are right now in the struggles for holiness and faithfulness that you have in the situations you are in, and not only that, your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. There's several books in the New Testament. There's, the book, there's a Lamb's Book of Life that's in Revelation chapter 21. You may have a cross-reference here that says Exodus 32, where Moses says, blot me out of the book of the living. Uh, there's the book of uh, deeds of those who do not follow and trust in Jesus Christ, where they will be judged according to the deeds in the books that happens in Revelation 21, 20 and 21 as well. This one is the book of security. This is the book that's probably mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12 of the first of the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven to where Jesus says, you may lose your reputation in the eyes of men. You may be forgotten in the eyes of your family and in your business partners. You may be totally embarrassed for holding to the truth of who I say I am, but I'll never forget your name. Not only will I never forget your name, your name will be inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life forever and always and for eternity. And what you will receive as you close your eyes and your brain waves go flat and your EKG goes flat and you step into eternity, Jesus Christ himself will confess your name before the Father in heaven among his angels. Now, if you thought it was crazy to think that Jesus will share his rule and his realm with you last week, for Jesus to stand in the courts of heaven and to say, I know her by name, she is mine. She will never be forgotten. And forever and always, she will be spoken of as the faithful of Jesus Christ. That I know his name. I know where he was. I know what he dealt with. I know when he felt like he was all alone and holding to the truth of my name. And he will be confessed before the Father in heaven and his angels. That Jesus will celebrate you.
If you don't believe me, read 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 gives a picture of heavenly applause for the faithful and their time on earth. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what are you living for? Be honest. Is your reputation so secure that you can experience loss in this life for the sake of commendation in the next? Can you lose the opinion of men for the commendation of Jesus? That's the tension that the church faces, isn't it? Isn't that the tension that the church faces from season to season and year to year? Is will this church be clear and explicit that true life is found in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ? See, those churches are the one who, in Jesus' opinion, experience life. Those are the living ones who hold to the true, particular, angular, uncomfortable truths of biblical doctrine that make them the spawning salmon that go upstream against the flow of what everybody else is doing, that say, like Joshua did, you can serve whoever you want, but as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. This is how we're going to do things here. Now, let me close with this, because this, boy, it, this is a temptation, is it not? You this week, you this month, you this year, I'm sure, have felt the, the pull of trying to defend your own reputation and live in such a way where people think well of you. We all feel that. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to dismantle that temptation and that constant attempt we have in our mind and heart to prove ourselves and to be something. Do you know that Philippians chapter 2 talks about this, that Jesus loses the commendation and the worship of heaven to descend. He loses reputation in the minds of mankind. And he loses the most important thing, the condemnation of God for you and for me. See, Jesus lost the most important element of his reputation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God made him to be sin, who knew no sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's amazing. That he became exposed, that he lost it all, that people spit on him and wounded him and bruised him. But not only that, he went to the cross and God turned his back on him. He lost the commendation of heaven that you and I might receive it. that you and I would step into heaven totally certain, totally secure, but because we've put our faith and our trust in heaven, in Jesus, and that Jesus now confesses our name in heaven, and we are welcomed into the heavenly courts with, heavenly courts with applause and, co and commendation. And wherever you are right now, wherever you're just going through the motions, would you hear this counsel? 
Could I invite you back to remembering the truth of the gospel message that gave you first true, authentic, spiritual life and intimacy with Jesus Christ? Would you remember what he has done for you? Would you remember that it matters where you put your hope in your reputation? And that in Jesus Christ, we can release our hands to the reputation and the opinions of men and receive the commendation of heaven. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, how we need these truths. We are so pressured to fall in love with our own reputation in the eyes of men. We feel that temptation so often and so powerfully to want to be a good husband, to want to be a good wife, to want to be a great student or a great employee. We want and desire people to think well of us, and oftentimes at the expense of our faithfulness to you. Would we never trade being good citizens in heaven, good Christians for being good citizens here? For those this morning who feel like they're just going through the motions, Father, I pray that they would take to heart the truths here, that they would hear that you are not done with them yet, that even if they sinned last night, that you still have work for them to do and that they would be a repenting kind of man or woman, that they would wake up and strengthen what, about, what, it, uh, what remains. Father, we're so thankful for Jesus Christ who lost the commendation of heaven that we might receive it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.